Welcome to the Meaning of Home podcast, where we discuss the complexities and connections between home and homelessness. I'm your host, Sarah Christou, and as always, with me is the podcast's producer, Dave Angel. We are doctoral researchers at Loughborough University, part of the Harnessing Opportunities for Meaningful Environments Centre for Doctoral Training, for short, the Home CDT. We are a cohort of seven PhD projects approaching concepts of home and homelessness through a creative lens to develop impactful new research. Every month, we'll bring a new episode with a range of guests to provide commentary and conversation on different themes. In this episode, our theme is change, where we'll be discussing what action is needed to address the national rise in homelessness. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Bridget Young, director of NACOM, the No Accommodation Network. Bridget has worked in housing and homelessness for over 17 years. Previously at the Nationwide Foundation, she managed the Transforming the Private Rented Sector programme. This included co-founding the Renters Reform Coalition, which brought together organisations representing renters to proactively influence the Renters Reform Bill. Originally from South Africa, Bridget's background is in human rights, social justice and homelessness. Soon after moving to the UK, Bridget joined Crisis and spent 10 formative years in the housing team, working with charities and local authorities across the UK to deliver housing services. She is now director of the No Accommodation Network. Welcome, Bridget, to the Meaning of Home podcast. So, as I said, we're discussing change. Let's start with some of the statistics, though. In England, the government reported an estimated 3,069 people slept rough on a single night in autumn 2022, an increase of 26% in one year and by 74% since 2010. The number of people sleeping rough grew in every region across the country and figures are likely to be underestimated. But rough sleeping is just one of a number of types of homelessness. People do not experience homelessness in a vacuum. With the cost of living crisis, cuts to services, a lack of safe, affordable housing and over a decade of increasing poverty levels, all leading to a rise in homelessness. Unless these wider causes are addressed, then it will be impossible to end homelessness in the long term. Bridget, taking this into consideration, how can we meaningfully talk about ending homelessness? Hi, Sarah. Thanks very much for inviting me on today. I think it's a really great question. And your introduction actually alludes to some of the things that we need to do, which is really look at the wider structural causes and solutions to ending homelessness, but ensure that we have kind of someone's human journey at the center of that. I think, like you said, homelessness is doesn't exist in a vacuum. And we are in, you know, challenging times in the UK with the cost of living crisis, the ongoing war in Ukraine, um, and wider kind of, you know, climate crisis, the wider global context. But I still think there are some political choices that can be made around what we prioritize and what we value. So if we talk about ending homelessness, we really need to continue. And I say continue because I think that real strides were made actually on this during the pandemic. So we need to continue to see homelessness, yes, 
as a housing crisis, as a as a as a crisis of lack of appropriate housing, but also um, as an issue of access to justice, as an issue of access to um, economic welfare, as an issue of community cohesion. I think if we really want to look at ending homelessness, we need to look at those wider structural issues and how they interconnect. Yes, ending homelessness is about addressing housing, but it's also a health issue. It's also an economic issue. It's also a community cohesion issue. It's also an access to justice issue. And if we start to look at each of those structural issues and how they interconnect and affect each other, we also start to see the solutions and the the points of um, intersection and intervention to start to address those structural changes. Thank you, Bridget. Yeah, justice, welfare, community cohesion, health, economics, lots of issues there. And Going back to those statistics that I was talking about uh, and the increases that we're seeing, why is homelessness in all of its forms, including rough sleeping, increasing in the UK? I think there are many answers to that question. But for me, fundamentally, it is because those structural issues are not being tackled head on. And different one of, you know, and I'm not an expert across all those issues, but certainly from a homelessness perspective, you do see some some attempts at change, some local interventions, some good practice, even at a national level. But these too often butt up against a lack of political will to really make big, bold decisions that last beyond this parliament, beyond the next parliament, that are taken out of sort of political wrangling and are really about reform. So I think the answer is because the structural changes have not been made and the system, you know, if you don't make the changes that are needed and you just continue to rely on a system that's not fit for purpose already, that's not invested in enough already, that hasn't had the reforms made already, that system, it doesn't just then stay the same, it continues to break down. Um, you know, a, a, a system that is not invested in enough fully, like, you know, the health system, doesn't just, it deteriorates if you don't invest in it. It doesn't just stay the same. And I think that's, we're, we're starting to see that bite now. You know, the, the, the pulverizing of um, public services over the last 10, 13 years, beyond that even, that doesn't have, you know, that has consequences. And I think we're really starting to see the bite of those consequences now um, in terms of the the sort of human suffering and the, the human consequences. And one of those is the rise in homelessness in all forms, as you said. So we've looked there a little at what's happened in the recent past that's led up to the current situation that we're in. But we are facing a crisis a growing crisis. What issues are on the horizon and is the situation going to get worse? I hope it doesn't get worse and I think you have to be glass half full otherwise you'd sit in a corner crying and they are they are solutions. What we need to see though is 
political will. And I say that with both a big P and a little P. It's not just about sort of, you know, party politics. It's also about politics with big and small organizations, local authorities, different sectors, you know, willing to come together, give away some power, that sort of thing. If we see, I think, political will to make changes that won't just benefit this parliament, for example, won't just benefit that person's tenure as CEO, for example, if we see that political will to make reforms, wider ranging, longer term reforms, then I think there's a chance. One of the things that is clear is that there are we are going through a tough time, as you said, you know, in your question, cost of living crisis, things worsening. So the, the, the problem is harder to fix now because it's worse. But we do have choices. There are political choices. There are financial choices that can be made. And we need to think about what we value. We need to get over this issue of short termism short-term funding, you know, wanting to do something that will, you know, sort of shout out loud and have a spotlight, but maybe not have long-term reform. We need to do away with that. And we need to think about what we value. We know that homelessness costs to solve. Of course it does. But not solving it costs even more. It costs in terms of human trauma, but it costs in terms of you know, economic contributions to, to our economy. It costs in terms of the costs to health, the cost to criminal justice. Um, so there are financial savings long-term to solving homelessness, never mind the kind of human costs. So we need to think about what do we value and what are we brave enough to put into place now that will bear fruit years down the line but be more systemic reform. That means we stop seeing these spikes in homelessness when there are sort of, you know, national trauma or national challenges. It seems to be that there's constantly then these spikes in homelessness because we don't have the systemic reforms to sort of soak up some of that trauma. Um, so if we invest in these longer term solutions, we invest in our public services, we invest in the public services, not just for the now, but to protect from the future, protect from these future spikes. Um, it's about, you know, that's what the safety net was supposed to be there for, to stop, to stop that happening. So I think that I hope that it doesn't get worse. But we would definitely need to see a dramatic shift in thinking and in bravery around making change that doesn't just benefit you or your organization or your political party or your election promises right now, but actually is about longer term reform for the people in this country. And I think if we're if we're looking at kind of us on a precipice, then, you know, hoping that things won't get worse. But as you said, you know, we need quite a big shift in political will. The other side of it, of course, is that latest government figures show that over 100,000 households in England are living in temporary accommodation, many of them with children. 
and research by the charity Museum of Homelessness shows that more than 1,300 people died while homeless in the UK in 2022, an 85% increase from just three years earlier. These figures include people sleeping rough as well as those placed in emergency accommodation and other insecure housing. So knowing that we've got over 100,000 households in this insecure housing situation, it's you know extremely concerning that this is these are coming out from official government figures, of course, and the line that we get from a lot of organisations is always that these are likely to be underestimated as well, because it's such a difficult area to uh, quantify and count and know people what different situations they are in, like many forms of homelessness that are being faced. So you you touched on earlier, you know, there's some good locally led initiatives happening. But actually, when we're thinking about change, this needs to happen at a policy level. So, Bridget, to address these deep rooted problems and in thinking about the growing issue that's like right, right in front of us, what needs to happen at that highest policy level to make sure that change, change that's meaningful really does occur? So I think there's a few things that need to happen at that policy level to make sure meaningful change occurs. The one thing is looking at funding. So that includes, for example, funding settlements for local authorities, um, funding available to voluntary sector services. There has definitely been some improvements in that in terms of giving slightly longer term funding, for example, around the um, recent uh, ending rough sleeping strategy that came out of Westminster. I think to truly allow there to be systemic change, though, we need to talk about much longer funding settlements, um, you know, at least 10 years. When you're talking about an issue as big as this, organisations, local authorities need to have certainty about what they're investing in, that they're going to have funding to deliver that. They also need to have some space to try things, to fail, to learn. And that is not currently built into too many funding models. It's very sort of deliver now um, or lose the funding. Deliver now, don't fail, don't make a mistake. If if you fail, it means it's, it's not worked. And we know how much you learn from something not working in the way you originally thought it would be. So that's one thing I think needs to change as a if, fundamentally rethink how things are funded and the types of settlements that things are given. I also think that we really need to root lived experience much stronger in terms of the design and delivery and review of policies. People with a lived experience, in my, in my experience, are happy to take very bold decisions to make things better for them and their families and their communities. They don't want to mess around. And that's what's needed to make these changes happen. I think there's something about accountability. Who are policies accountable to? 
who are they accountable to at the moment? It's it's too complex. Um, it's too kind of, you know, wrapped up in kind of red tape and um, and you have to understand quite complex kind of structures and commissioning processes and all that sort of thing to really hold both kind of central and local government and the voluntary sector to account about delivery. I think if we, that's almost about reshaping how we think about designing policy about, you know, those longer term funding settlements, about thinking about who we're accountable to for those policies. So I think if you do that, then you start to be able to unpick some of the knotty issues. So, for example, around housing, around who owns the land and about how developments are decided and about the affordability issue um, and about infrastructure making sure that there's the right infrastructure in place. If you're reshaping how we think about and design policy and putting people with lived experience, communities at the heart of those, and you're accountable to those people in a much sort of more obvious way, for me, that's about like almost systemic reform of central policies to to make that transformational change. And that might seem a little bit of a wishy-washy sort of answer. I just worry about, you know, if you name a policy. So I take the Renters Reform Bill as um, as a, uh, you know, a suggestion. Some really obvious opportunities to reform an area of housing that's definitely needed reform. I think, you know, Landlords and tenants would agree that the private rent sector needs reform. They might disagree on exactly what it is and, and you know, how it should happen, but it needs some reform. But if you're, you know, the bills come forward and is being discussed, there's already sort of tensions and discussions about what it's going to achieve, if it's being kind of watered down, if there's too much disagreement about enforcement. We're back into looking at policy, looking at legislation in the way we've always done. So, yes, there will be change. I'm a big fan of kind of the Renters Reform Coalition and the work that they're doing to try and improve the sector for the people who live in it. But it's a, it's hard work and it's a lot of work. And what it will result in is incremental change. And I'm not knocking incremental change because actually a win is a win. But if we want to really rethink and make the systemic change and not make it such hard work for everyone and everyone's kind of time and capacity into making just those incremental changes, I think we need to fundamentally think how we do sort of central policy reform, who it's accountable to and how we invest in delivering it to really give it a chance to have that kind of the dramatic changes that are needed to tackle this kind of growing issue, which, you know, the stats you highlighted show is at the precipice. Thank you, Bridget. Some really insightful points there. And I think it reminded me of some of the writings of Rebecca Solnit when we talk about uh, when we're faced with what feels like these 
insurmountable problems. How do we continue? How do we have the impetus to go on? How do we tackle it? How how do we not live in constant despair when we think about the massive problems that we face? And so she, you know, talks about this idea of active hope and that what's a really important part of that is that change is how you get to change and that there are these moments in history where now where we can reflect back on back on that and we can see that change happened um but it did take that step by step by step and not losing hope and continuing to believe that change was possible and i think it's an important point also that she makes about making sure we continue to celebrate those small, smaller achievements and successes that we do have as a way to sort of fuel that impetus and that will to go on to make those bigger steps for change as well. And touching on something you said before about we need justice, we need welfare, we need community cohesion, we need um, economic support, we need healthcare. You know, these also touch on lots of other departments. So we actually, in terms of like how uh, our government is set up and how we kind of, you know, that that one's justice, that one's health, that one's education, that one's uh, for employment and working and and that one's for housing, but actually they're all connected. And if we want to genuinely end homelessness or at the very least stop it from increasing, then we need a multi-agency way of working and across sectors as well. Could you maybe unpack that for us a bit more? How can a multi-agency way of working help to tackle homelessness? I think the multi-agency approach to ending homelessness is the only way to ending homelessness. So it's not even a model that we should maybe think of. It's the only way. For some of the reasons that you, you know, so beautifully put in your question, actually, and Something that that really made me think of is the fact that homelessness is a product of failings in so many other areas. And people who experience homelessness, are it's a trauma that they experience. It's not who they are. Um, it's not their whole person. It's a trauma that they experience. And the sort of support that they require to address that trauma or ideally prevent it, lies in so many other areas of our society. I think the other sort of agency I would add to some of those that you listed is the community. I think that we saw so much amazing action through the pandemic of kind of community support and working in the um, asylum and immigration sector there is incredible community support um, to people who are very marginalized and demonized by kind of large swathes of society, including our kind of political class, much of our political class. So I would add kind of the community into that multi-agency approach. But then to unpack it a little bit, 
and to, to again pick up at a point that you you know made really well, it's about you know yes it's about collective action, but it's also about collective outcomes. I don't think we can disagree with the fact that no one should experience homelessness. But actually, if we take a step back, I don't think everyone in society is there. I think that, and really concerning again with some of the narrative around kind of people seeking asylum, um, people migrating here, there's almost an acceptance that poor quality housing, that homelessness is okay for some groups of people. And what the basis of any approach to ending homelessness, any kind of multi-agency work to ending homelessness needs to be is that no one deserves to be homeless. If they are homeless, they should be supported out of that situation as quickly as possible, and we should do everything we can to prevent that. No one deserves homelessness. I feel really strongly, and it's not just with homelessness, it's with other aspects of our lives, but with homelessness, if we accept that anyone deserves to be homeless or it's okay for anyone to be homelessness, we risk saying it's okay for everyone to be homeless. Because we know that, you know, if we chip away at any sort of civil liberties or at any, you know, aspects of someone's human rights, we chip away for any group, we risk chipping away for everyone. So that's just as a starting point of any kind of multi-agency work. No one deserves to be homeless. That's our collective outcome. And then we really look at what do we need to do to deliver that? So at NACOM, um, we use a framework which we developed from our friends in Scotland, Fairway Scotland Project, who do amazing work there on exactly this, the collective approaches to ending destitution and homelessness. But we look at this framework to say, what needs to be done to support people um, facing homelessness and destitution? It's really about um, access to good quality accommodation, access to legal advice, access to living essentials, trauma-informed care, um, support with employment for some people. Those are the sort of the bucket of services in the middle that's needed. Access to health care. As you know, I've not said that. That's definitely part of that too. Not one agency or organization can provide that all. But if we take a multi-agency approach that says we have collective outcomes, then we can say, what do we do best to deliver that outcome? We don't have to do that on our own, whether that's legal advice, whether that's about you know, well-being, whether that's about destitution payments, whether that's about looking at kind of housing options, both temporary and move on. There is so much good practice and expertise on a local level, on national levels. But it's something about creating a framework that allows people to come together and use their knowledge, use their expertise, do what they do best towards that collective outcome. And sometimes we also talk about kind of collective action, which, which is that is almost about like tightening that framework and saying, well, we're really going to do this together because we're going to have a memorandum of understanding or we're going to do some joint funding and we're going to have some shared targets. That's also a great approach, but I don't think you need that because that's actually that can be a bit scary for some kind of agencies. That's it's almost a, a step too far. 
but something about creating a framework where we can talk about collective outcomes and what's our role, I say our, as, a, as an organization, as a community in delivering that. That for me also allows us to say, where are the gaps? What's not being delivered? I think that too often is missing from a multi-agency approach. Sort of get some great organizations around the table, great statutory agencies around the table, and they're doing some great work together, but not assessing what the gaps are. Who's not at the table? What services not being, being provided? I think, for example, the community is often, that gap is often not at the table. Pulling out a few of the points that you're you're making there, I think this comes back to home as a right, and that therefore homelessness is an issue of injustice. And that last point with regards to highlighting gaps, I think this also connects to something we touched on earlier, but I'd, I'd like to talk about more specifically, is... You know, we talk about policy-led change, we talk about central decision-making, we've talked about how we can have multi-agency joint working as well. Um, but the people with lived experience, those who are expertise, have those expertise by the experiences that they've had in terms of the loss of home, in terms of the trauma that they have experienced as well, they, the people with lived experience are those who are able to highlight where those gaps are, connecting to, you know, the point that you're making about community. And that that essentially is what we mean when we're talking about the community as well. But are people with lived experience genuinely being involved in that decision making or is it tokenistic at the moment? How can we really ensure that the change that needs to happen is the right change led by the people who it impacts the most? That is a great question. And I think there are lots of answers to it. But the way for me to explain my thinking around it is, I think there's a lot of good work being done to really um, centre the experience of people who have you know, lost their home, who've experienced the trauma of homelessness in decisions around what the solutions should be. There's some really great examples, but it's not universal. I think we're not at the point where it has become the norm that you will involve people with lived experience in service design, in policy making. There's some pockets of good work and we're better sort of as a sector than we were. But until it becomes the norm, as well as, for example, making a business case about it or a budget about it, you know, it's it's sort of just part of what you have to do to pursue anything, as I say, whether that's a funding bid, service delivery, a policy, whatever. We're not there yet. I think part of the reason why we're not there is that there's not one size fits all. I think it really depends on what you're trying to do 
to then look at well how is the what's the best way to engage people with lived experience that isn't tokenistic that isn't a just and I'm going to say this but I don't mean this in a, such a cavalier way but too often you know it's not just a panel to say these people have lived experience we're going to put some suggestions to them see what they think take that back that can work really well for some things but it doesn't work for everything I think we need to get better at looking at with this piece of work we want to do, what's the best way to engage people with lived experience? Is it about an advisory board? Is it about a panel? Is it about engaging and supporting people with lived experience to be, to sit on um, a decision-making group? Um, Is it about um, people with lived experience delivering research, which is the, the approach that we've taken at NACOM? What is the way to really get best input from people with lived experience that will give intel that's really meaningful, but also be a positive process for the people involved. I think that's really, really, so so much of, um, you know, engaging people with lived experience can be extractive and it needs to be a two-way process. And part of that two-way process is the accountability that there's an accountability and a feedback loop that people understand how the input has been used and why decisions have been made and have been involved in that. I think the other thing as well is that there's a balance to be struck to engaging people with lived experience, but also not putting the responsibility of that group of people to kind of represent everyone. Um, you know, that's a lot of responsibility. And and they need that needs to be managed. You know, there's a, there's a balance to be created there. I think the final point I want to make on this is that I sometimes get the sense that there is willingness, but almost a little bit of fear about really meaningfully doing this work. And I think that's because organisations almost a bit worried about getting it wrong. And you know, my real view is that start somewhere you know starting somewhere is better than planning something planning a a project with people's lived experience or a feedback loop or a panel whatever planning it for years and years and years and, and and tinkering away at the plans and not really delivering it start somewhere but have an approach that's sort of open to learn and is transparent about that learning because you're getting feedback then all along the way and you're starting to embed the um, the experience of people who've, who've ex- you know, gone through the trauma of homelessness, um, lost their homes, etc. cetera. You're, you're already getting that. You don't have to have a perfect model before you start getting that. But I do think you have to have a an openness and a transparency um, as you're developing the model that works for you in, in whatever you're trying to do important then to take action while we navigate an imperfect situation and I was thinking there while you're talking about some uh, recent comments and reports that came out from the Centre for Homelessness Impact that said we need to enable local authorities to act more effectively based on a better understanding of the drivers of homelessness because it's in their communities and it's meant to be community led. So there's also 
with that in mind, there's attainable change, change that can happen locally, change that can happen now, change in the present. But there's also a need to be pointed towards an ideal change in the future. So, Bridget, what is some of the more radical change that's needed? You you know, you touched on earlier about for this to happen, we've got to get out of this short termism. We need that long term thinking. So what's the radical change that's needed to approach homelessness? I think the one bit of radical change that's needed that would underpin everything else is a belief that homelessness does not need to happen. It is a solvable issue. No one deserves to be homeless and no one needs to be homeless. I go on about this a lot because it is such an important thing for me. But there's a South African phrase called um, South African philosophy um, called Ubuntu, which is about how my humanity is connected to your humanity. And there's something about like, how do we embed that sense of Ubuntu in how we think about homelessness and how you know homelessness should no longer exist? For me, that's the fundamental shift because that has a ripple effect on everything else. We end every episode of the podcast with a recurring segment where I ask each guest the same question. What does home mean to you? Bridget, what does home mean to you? Home to me is peace and family. So for me, if you have a place of peace, that means somewhere to rest, somewhere to recharge, to heal, to laugh. Um, And if you're in a place of peace, you're at peace with yourself. You have sort of that platform to explore things that, you know, allow you to be your best self. And while, as I have young children, sometimes peace for me means being at home on my own, um, sort of home is very much sort of intrinsically linked for me with my family too. Thank you, Bridget. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. We would like to thank our guest, Bridget Young, for joining us and sharing her thoughts. For more information about our work, please visit meaningofhome.uk. Follow us on Twitter at meaningofhomelu. Remember to follow and share our podcast. And of course, thank you all for listening to The Meaning of Home. This podcast was created by The Home CDT. It was hosted by Sarah Christou, produced and edited by Dave Angel, and the music is by the Angel Brothers. All ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the individual. The Meaning of Home is brought to you by doctoral researchers at Loughborough University.